Hello and welcome. This is Hear Her Sports, the female athlete podcast featuring intimate profiles with female athletes, coaches, and other women in the sporting world. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. This conversation with big wave surfer Paige Alms was recorded over the summer, but now is perfect timing to release the episode because the World Surfing League Big Wave season is now officially underway and will run through March 31st, 2022. You can keep tabs on what's going on by following WSL and Paige on Instagram. Also here today is a special guest, co-host, and my friend from our New York City bike racing days, Dana Ong, who has long lived in Hawaii and is a surfer. As you will hear, she intimately knows Hawaiian and surfing culture. I always do lots of research before meeting guests, but not everything translates. There's nothing like really being in it, so thank you, Dana. The three of us talk about what it's like to ride big waves, being in the ocean, specifics to the water of Hawaii, the dangers, and some precautions. Paige shares how she trains and what she thinks is particularly important. We also talk about supporting manufacturers who are making proper surf clothing for women and also about gardening. Okay, let's meet everyone and get going. But before we do, a word from this week's sponsor. Fans of women surfing or anyone with a passing interest in the sport should check out a spectacular new book on the subject, Women on Waves, A Cultural History of Surfing, from ancient goddesses and Hawaiian queens to Malibu movie stars and millennial champions, by former editor of Surfer Magazine, Jim Kempton, published by Pegasus Books. Women on Waves is filled with phenomenal athletic performances, breakthrough female achievements, and plenty of inspiration and fun. Order your copy today from hearhersports.com books and hit the waves with these fantastic female surfers. Joining me today as co-host is my long-ago bike racing friend, Dana Maylon Ong. She is a recreational surfer living in the Muku, Owailuha, on the island of Oahu, Hawaii. She is also a former cyclist who belonged to the Century Road Club Association in New York City and rode for the Gotham Bikes women's team in the 1990s. She is a former leather designer, metal guitar player, and generally a lover of the arts. In her second life, she has been a family caregiver and works as an architectural design assistant. When she is not in the water with her favorite people, she's probably cooking or eating fresh local food, scolding her beloved pets, and dreaming of the next day of glassy waves. And our guest today, two-time big wave world champion and one of Maui's token female big wave surfers, Paige Alms is an active water enthusiast and foil frother. Born on the island of Victoria, BC, Canada, Paige relocated to Maui when she was nine years old after traveling the entire breadth of Australia in a van with her mom. Ho'okipa became her stomping grounds by 10, and at 15, Paige's first big wave session had her instantly hooked. It's no surprise that Peahi, also known as Jaws, is where this athlete honed the skills for riding mountains, having the famous big wave spot only five minutes from her house. In 2020, Paige was named the women's winner of the Red Bull Big Wave Awards Biggest Paddle for a December 12th ride at the world-famous Jaws on a wave measuring 36 feet on the wave's face. And just in late October, it was announced that she won the Biggest Paddle Award again for a ride at Todos Santos, Mexico on January 11th, 2021. Paige continues to push herself to ride the biggest waves possible alongside her peers and hopes by doing so she can inspire other people to push their limits and live their dreams. She is on the forefront of women in the big surf and has long fought for equal representation in her sport. She is also featured in an excellent documentary called The Wave I Ride. That link is in the show notes, so you can easily find it there. 
welcome to you both, Data and Paige. You know, I am so excited about this. I'm excited to have a co-host. I'm excited to be back in contact with Dana, and it is a real pleasure to meet you, Paige. Hi. Oh, excited to chat with you, ladies. Thanks for having me on. You know, I want to set the stage first off. You know, Paige, talk about what kind of surfing you do, you know, what it's like. But I also want to get into what Hawaii surfing is like and what the culture is like. So why don't you start us off, Paige? Yeah, well, I grew up here on Maui. Uh, I moved here when I was nine years old and got enrolled at haiku school, started at fourth grade. And I'd always loved being in and around the ocean and felt pretty confident as a swimmer and with my bodyboard, you know, standing up on waves. It was kind of a natural progression to get into surfing. My mom took me to the beach almost every day. She loved going down there. And yeah, it was just something that kind of like was inevitable. And I got aboard and, you know, we have a pretty unique little beach set up at Ho'okipa and it's a pretty safe little circle that you can as long as you don't go too far out when you're learning you can catch a million little waves on the inside non-stop every single day and so learning how to surf there and you know getting into my teenage years it was I mean growing up on Maui we have such like big surf pretty consistently in the winter time here in Hawaii and it was kind of just like a natural progression to go and become more comfortable in bigger, bigger waves. And when I was 15, um, that was my first like big wave paddle in session. And yeah, every winter, it's kind of what I base my whole career and my passion is riding big waves. So my whole plan for the year is dedicated towards our winter seasons. And right now it's summertime, so, you know, a little shift into different things. And then all of a sudden, you know, winter creeps up on us and we're we're getting north swells. So, yeah, just really grateful to live here. So the big waves are only in the winter time? Normally, yeah. Our winter seasons, usually like October through March, April. Well, before we find out about Hawaii surfing and what that culture is like, Paige, could you also talk about you know, like, what is it like? I mean, is it describable what it's like to be on a big wave? For somebody who's never done that, what can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, for sure I can describe it, but I don't think, like, the true saying, like, only a surfer knows the feeling, It it's really hard to put into words what riding a wave, getting barreled, riding a giant wave, what it actually feels like if you've never felt it. But to me, the feeling that I get from it, and I think it's unique for every surfer, and I think that that is why it's so special. You know, your connection with the water and moving on top of the water is a different feeling for every person. And depending on what type of equipment and what day and all of that, it's there's so many variables that make it so unique. And for me, riding big waves, you know, being on a giant wave, it only lasts for such a short amount of time normally that it's all of your love and dedication and years of knowledge, like all compact into like, let's say five seconds. And so it's almost as if time stands still and you're hypersensitive to almost everything that is going on around you, but you're moving at such a speed that 
it almost just kind of, it becomes just like innate and a part of you. And all of a sudden the wave is over and looking back on the waves, you know, you can kind of tap back into that feeling, but it truly is just such a fast, like fast moment in time that took, can take so long to get, you know, during a winter season, if we have, you know, kind of an average big wave season might only ride like a few, you know, handfuls of waves, like big waves, you know, dropping in at the top of like a 40 foot wave is just the most exhilarating experience that I've ever had. You know, I've had a lot of really cool experiences in the mountains, snowboarding and, you know, paragliding and these, these moments that give you like those super highs, but there's nothing like looking down the wall of a moving mountain of blue. (laughs) It's just magic. So for the listeners that have never experienced or have never lived here, I think there's something unique about the culture of Hawaii and surfing. So are there a couple experiences related to the surf culture of Hawaii that contributed to your development as an athlete, as a, you know, a water woman? Yeah, of course. I mean, growing up here and just being a part of the local surf community and being a part of, you know, our ocean community, it's been an an absolute pleasure. And I don't think that there's anywhere else in the world that is like this. I know there, you know, the similarities of just being an ocean sports athlete all around the world, for sure. That's what ties us all together is being in the ocean. But here on Maui in particular, we have a really, you know, tight knit community. And I feel that just the ocean culture here is so strong and has, you know, from canoe paddling to surfing, like these sports have been around for a very, very long time. And then also a lot of sports have started here, um, ocean sports. And we just have like such a rad, deep rooted love of the ocean here. And you can really feel it through all of the people that have grown up here and that love our oceans. Yeah, I just think that I I I question myself sometimes like how lucky I am to be able to do this and to be able to share that love of the ocean on to the next generation and I think Maui and Hawaii in particular is just we're so rooted in the ocean. I just feel very fortunate that I found surfing at such a young age. So I don't know if it's similar to Oahu, but we have had so much inundation in the water this year since lockdown because a lot of the kids couldn't play team sports. So there's so many people in the water right now. Is it the same in Maui? Yeah, for sure. I mean, last April, we had a month of glassy surf here and, you know, nobody was working. So it was definitely the busiest (laughs) the oceans have ever been. And then this year add on all of the tourism coming back so for sure it's the busiest lineups i've ever seen um and i know that that's happening worldwide you talk to you know any friends in california and even in australia like places all over the world people are getting in the ocean and you know there's positives and negatives to that right like as a surfer oh it's so crowded and so frustrating but then it's also just so amazing that the power of the ocean is bringing more people in. And, you know, I think it's so awesome to see how many kids are enjoying the oceans here and 
I just think surfing's the absolute best thing that you can do as a kid. So it's, you know, trying to stay positive. We have so little waves compared to Oahu. Like our North Shore is pretty limited because of the wind here. So mm. I've been dabbling in the wing foiling and foil surfing a bit more, which is still the root of riding waves. And But just trying to kind of branch out a bit and get away from the crowds. Yeah. You know, here in Hawaii, especially our North facing shores, the strength of the waves here is so strong that visitors come and they look at something that looks like a California wave, but they're life-threatening waves. They're not, they're not small, glassy, fun, you know, just enjoyable bikini waves. They're powerful. So as a big wave surfer, you experience that times a hundred probably, you know, compared to like me, the biggest day I've been out in Haleiwa is five foot. And that's still powerful to me. And it is powerful, you know, but can you kind of just sort of explain to the viewers the power of um, all the Hawaiian islands, basically, I would say? Yeah, the the power of the surf that we get here is just incredible. It's like all of the storms that come our way have traveled for so long. And just the way the bathymetry and the, the way the bottom of our coastlines are, you know, all of the North Shore facing and West, I mean, everywhere even the South Shores, right? It's like completely different than a lot of places. But yeah, the power of the waves here are just so much different than a lot of places around the world. Our waves have incredible power, even when they're small, um, which is, you know, I feel the best quality surf has a lot of push behind it. But for people that have never been in that sort of power, it can, you know, you're taking a look out at the lineup and it might seem like, oh, that that's just a waste, maybe chest high wave. <laughs> but that wave has like triple the power of, you know, Southern California or uh, most of the West Coast um, besides the bigger wave spots. Doesn't have the, the same sort of power and currents. And yeah, it's definitely... It's a blessing, I think, for us, but it's also extremely dangerous for sure if you're if you're not comfortable in that sort of push. Since you talked about power, you know, do men and women surf differently? In part, I'm thinking about cyclocross, which is, you know, bike racing in my sport, and the women don't have the same wattage the men do, and so they tend to have more finesse to get around the course. And I'm wondering if there's some sort of similarity between men and women surfers. For sure. I mean, it's our biological, you know, makeup and our physiology is completely different. Men and women are different. Surfing is a bit different when you're comparing, you know, the the strength. For sure, I would say 95% of guys' paddle strength are stronger than women. It's just they're stronger, for sure. I mean, myself and a handful of women that are taller and have longer reach and that sort of thing, maybe we're in this category that can be somewhat equivalent, but I'm looking at my peers that are the same height and same weight, and they are stronger than me, no doubt. But when it comes to actually riding the wave, I don't know if, you know, there are moments for sure, and big wave surfing is definitely one of them where you have to have that, like, leg core strength but it really comes down to like your finesse with riding these waves and you know some of the most beautiful surfing comes with just ease and placement and good 
like style, you're not forcing anything. So with that, I think that women might have an advantage, but it really, it just depends on the type of surf that you're surfing, the boards that you're riding. And, you know, there's variables from, from both sides. But if we're talking about just core, you know, paddle strength, like for sure guys are a bit stronger than most women. Out on the water as you're waiting for the wave, you know, what are you thinking about? What's your mindset? Do you have any goals for that wave that you're going to ride? Or like, what are you thinking about? I guess every day is different. You know, if I'm just going out to have an hour to get wet and rinse off the day, I guess that's a little bit different than, you know, a firing big, huge swell or training for a competition or something like that. So every session is different for me. I, I tend to find myself more with, especially with the crowds nowadays that I'm just going out to, to get wet and to have a good time and not trying to go out and like prove anything or, or do something specific. But I was recently training for the ISA world games and every session that I was going out for leading up to that event, I was working on something in particular and it was really like fun and a unique challenge since I hadn't been competing like that since, you know, since my early twenties and I really enjoyed it and I felt like my surfing got better. And I think that that's what's so awesome about surfing is like, you're never like perfect and you can always continue to get better. And, you know, even the most minute little increases and things that you've been working on are just such huge gains in surfing. So, I mean, some sessions I'm going out and I'm just like really focusing on one specific maneuver, but that being said, waves are ever changing and the crowds and everything, all these different variables, you might only get like two or three chances to like, do that one maneuver to hit that lip in that way. If that, you know, sometimes it's like you might just get the one section during your, your two hour surf that gives you the opportunity to practice that. So it's a bit of both, but I'd say I'm, unless I'm like in really pumping hollow heavy surf, it's more of a, let's go get wet and have some fun and just be grateful that we're in the ocean. So can I ask you about training for big wave surfing? Do you have any specific training for wipeouts? Can you walk us through that a little bit, like what you do? For sure. I think the number one thing is you can only train so much for bad situations, right? Like it's kind of inevitable that something at some point somewhere is going to happen. It's kind of like everyday life, you know, like it's pretty inevitable that someone's going to rear end you or you're going to trip and fall and scrape your knee or whatever, you know, like it's, it's a part of it. Really terrible, horrible life threatening situations. Like I definitely, you know, we train for what to do because, you know, if you're knocked unconscious, like who's going to help you, that kind of thing. And especially in big waves and out at Jaws, you know, we have a pretty good system in place for if something bad happens and what are the next steps. But those things all happen with just communication, having the right team around you and your friends in the lineup that you surf with on a regular basis. You know, everyone should have simple first aid CPR knowledge. Like 
even if you are surfing one foot Waikiki, someone can get hit in the chest and be knocked unconscious. And if you don't know what to do to how to get them back to shore or any of that, like, you know, it's, it's a skill set that I think everyone should have. You never know when you're going to walk by an auntie that's fallen down on the ground and is unconscious. So I think that's like a huge, huge part of it. And I think anyone that is listening to this, if you have never done a CPR course, like sign yourself up. It's pretty amazing. What a few simple things you can learn that can ultimately save people's lives. And I've seen it put into action. I'm very fortunate I haven't had to do it myself on someone, but I've seen people like, you know, be brought back to life through CPR. So I think that's a huge thing. Training like physically for like myself for bad wipeouts and bad situations. I think, you know, just being at your peak physical performance level, like leading into a winter season, I want to feel the best that I've ever felt. And, you know, as you get a little bit older, it's just, you know, things change and morph and, you know, you add in more things and take away certain things, but I'm definitely in like extremely good physical shape leading into the winter season. And I've been eating really clean and just in a different mindset, you know, you go from kind of taking a break and recovery during the summer and then going back into the the winter season in full swing. And I feel my absolute best, like I can handle anything when uh, my body is feeling really good. So we're doing five days a week at our local gym here that is a lot different than just say weights in a gym that you go in and train. We are doing everything from, you know, like really active, like our Mondays, for example, tonight I have a class that is, um, it's called activation and it's basically just turning all of your muscles and everything on in a very like gentle way where, you know, you're not winded from this hour and a half class, but everything's turned on and ready to take on the week. And I do a very similar kind of workout the day before as well, just to kind of like wake everything up, you know, tell stuff that it's it's ready to fire. And then the rest of the week is Tuesday, we do a strength class and into the winter training, we're, you know, we're doing more cardio workouts and beach workouts and stuff like that. And yeah, I just have a pretty unique setup here that is just awesome. Deep relief, peak performance. My trainer, Sam, and I have worked together for eight, seven years, eight years now. And I just, I don't know where I'd be without her and her team. Like, it's so amazing, the support that I've had from them and being able to come back from injuries and feel stronger than ever. That really helps knowing that if you do get hurt, that you can come back. I'm glad you mentioned injury and aging because, I mean, especially with big wave surfing where there's so much risk and fear and you've figured out how to manage that. How do you manage that? How have you figured out how to manage that? And did you notice any changes after your big shoulder injury or other injuries or as you've been aging, have you noticed anything? Yeah, for sure. I mean, every injury, especially, you know, the past few years have felt a lot different than the early 20s and you just sprain something you're back at it a couple weeks later everything takes a lot longer to heal 
but with that, I feel like I've learned more about my body than I would have if I was fine. My shoulder injury was by far the worst injury that I've had and that kept me out of the water the longest. And still to this day, you know, like there are things from that injury that my body has learned to compensate with and shift. And, you know, I've had this kind of lingering hip thing for almost a year that started from a pulled hamstring surfing jaws. We've kind of figured out that the hamstring hip injury was the start of it. But then the coming back, like I've had this kind of shift in my, my rib cage. And a lot of it has come from my shoulder. And, you know, there's certain positions that it can't go in. So it's interesting. Um, but being able to learn how to work through that and around it, having the knowledge of, you know, okay, these might be a couple weak points, let's work on this. And tend to come back from injuries stronger than I was before them. So, you know, it's all a part of it. And for sure, my my approach to surfing big waves has definitely changed in the past 10 years. And I really have gotten just a lot more picky. And I'm totally okay with that. You know, there are days where I'm perfectly fine just watching. And knowing that, you know, one little mistake can ruin your entire winter it really sucks to sit on the sidelines when you want to be a part of it. So I've just, you know, I'm a little bit more methodical and I really try to pick waves that I'm going to make. But with that all being said, you know, you can get caught inside and sometimes things just don't go your way or dropping in and slip of a, a foot. Things happen. That's kind of the joy of life. So just trying to be as physically prepared to to handle those situations and and hope for the best when you're on the water do you think about getting injured or once you're out there you're ready to go i mean what, what's your fear level sort of like again that question of when you're on that wave sort of what's your mindset in terms of injury and fear yeah when i'm riding a wave i'm never thinking about oh what happens if i'm gonna fall because as soon as you have that in your mind you're gonna fall I mean, for sure, there is fear there in a big wave lineup when the surf is huge and things are unpredictable. It's terrifying. But being able to work through that fear, that's such a huge part of big wave surfing and why it's just so amazing is when you push through those boundaries and have a successful ride, like that feeling is just the best feeling ever. You know, you feel so accomplished and you live off of those highs for weeks after maybe a five second wave. So, you know, it's the fear is always there, but learning how to balance it and really trying to just live in your happy bubble. And I'm a huge like fan of positive affirmations and when I'm out in the lineup, I'm telling myself, okay, this is the next one coming and trying to like read what the waves are doing and really focus and tap into being there and being present rather than like, oh, if I f slip and fall or like what's going to happen, I really try not to go there. You know, you can manifest and create that happening. And I feel like if you just stay in the positive and manifest the wave that you want to ride, that it's going to find you. Sure. Elizabeth, I kind of liken it sometimes to pace lining, like, you know, you don't want to cross wheels, so you don't think about it, right? I think cycling and surfing have like that one thing, at least this one thing in common where you, you're trained to look where you want to go, right? 
and through a crowd or through sections that are not friendly. It's sort of like it's a very focused thing, you know, and so you're just so present. There's no outer extraneous energy things, events that are like filling your life at that time. You're just there, you know, it's just one of those like you are alive at 100% and you are present at 100%. It's like the beauty of being in the water, you know, you are completely present. A force greater than yourself takes over, (laughs) right? For sure. I have an equipment question for you. It's just something I noticed when I was watching your movie. I noticed one of your, you know, your guns had like a swallow tail on it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Is that to loosen up the board in your bottom turn? I mean, all most of my guns now, like before they were all round pins and now they're swallow tails. And my fiance, Sean, is a is a shaper and makes all of my boards and makes a lot of big wave guns for people here and around the world. And he'll tell you that on a board that big, the swallowtail, it's just a look. <laughs> um, it's just a look. It's not it's a, essentially, it's more about the rail line, you know, the last like couple inches of a tail on a board that big, like you're not pivoting. It might give you like a very minute change, but when you're riding a 50 foot wave, like the adjustment from a tail like that is, it's basically a, a round pin just cut out. So I think. Like on smaller boards, for sure, there is a, a huge difference in feel. But on such a long gun, it's there's so many more things that are a part of the board than just the last like two inches. Yeah, I was just like curious <laughs> because I was like, wow, that's a swallowtail on a gun. Like, that's interesting to me. You know, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Maybe I just haven't paid attention enough, you know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are riding them now, but I think it's just more of a look. <laughs> Mm, okay okay (laughs) sorry i just had to ask that no worries are you involved in shaping your boards like are you involved the like the rails the width the thickness that kind of are you really involved in the details of them for my big wave guns not really it's more of i i share what i'm feeling and sean translates that into the numbers and for sure like we have a bit more intimate of a relationship regarding our surfboards and I can talk in a way that, you know, we'll go out to dinner and we're talking about surfboards. So it's, <laughs> you know, I feel like my boards are so fine tuned from what I share with Sean on how I'm feeling, you know, just the feeling of how I'm paddling and what the board feels like. And I do give my input, like, do you think changing the width here would give that feeling or, but he's pretty good at taking my my notes and critiques and what I'm feeling under my feet and under my chest when I'm paddling to translate that into into an improvement. And it seems to work every single time. Like, you know, I'm like, okay, I want to feel like my nose comes down more quicker rather than staying in the air. And it's like a minute, tiny little change in the rocker line. And I feel it like the first moment that I paddle the board and I'm like, wow, okay, that, that was a huge change. But when it comes down to like my short boards and stuff, you know, Sean says I'm his hardest critic, (laughs) but I think that that's just because that we can speak in a way that's a lot different than just, you know, a surfer shaper. And when it comes down to short boards, like I'm definitely like that volume and this look and that, like I, I'm a lot more detail oriented because the board is so much smaller and I, 
you know, I've ridden a lot more shortboards than I have guns in my lifetime. So in that sense, I'm like, yeah, try this. You know, what should we do if we played with the fin positioning or, you know, can we thin out the rail here and um, what that'll do? It's really fun. Like, I'm so grateful to have him and to be able to have that connection with, you know, the boards that I'm riding. I feel like just so confident on the boards that are under my feet to eliminate that aspect, you know, in big wave surfing of any worry on equipment. You know, I don't even like question it at all. I just feel really confident on the feel of my boards. And I think that that really helps with your confidence level when you're riding big waves. Are you wearing, I know a couple of guys that were telling me they wear like a double flotation device as opposed to just a single one. Is that something that's like common in the industry and do you do it? Well, now mostly everyone is wearing an impact vest that is, you know, padded wetsuit. So essentially, if you're knocked unconscious, you don't, you know, you're not aware that you need to pull the inflation vest. So having an impact vest on, almost everybody has that. I think that's the most important tool of of the big wave kit is having that on because that gives you that flotation and brings you to the surface no matter what, um, whether you're, you're attached to a board or not. And it definitely helps with impact on wipeouts just to have that little bit more padding kind of like you know the wakeboard guys have been wearing these impact vests forever and it's the same when you're going down a giant wave and that skip and impact from you know you're basically hitting concrete (laughs) until you go through the water so it helps for that as well but then yeah we're all wearing the the inflation suits I use the Patagonia vest I think it's by far the best one and you can wear it underneath any wetsuit which is pretty awesome you know you just roll it up and I put it in my backpack when I'm traveling and can put it on under a big full suit or a spring suit here in Hawaii so yeah we have two on and then I know some people have their theories on what to wear and why but that's what I I wear and I feel really confident and comfortable that's the thing is like the more you wear the more uncomfortable it is having those extra few inches of padding on you makes it super challenging to paddle. So I try to keep it at a minimum, but I definitely wear both of those anytime I'm in, in big waves at all. Can I jump back to training a little bit? Do you work on balance at all? And and if so, how? Yeah. Almost every time that I'm in the gym, we're doing something that is focused on balance and you know, balance comes from a lot of all the little tiny muscles that you don't normally think about and use and getting them to work. It's funny how a lot of those tiny little twitchy muscles and your calves and your feet and your ankles and every little thing helps. If those aren't working and those aren't used to working, your balance is really unstable. But yeah, we do a lot of a lot of work on BOSU balls, you know, the half Indo. And then we do the Indo board. Um, that's pretty fun. A lot of one-legged agility work. And a little bit of everything, you know. Those are just things off the top of my head that we do pretty consistently. And and I feel like that helps a lot. And doing a lot of things barefoot. And, yeah, I'm trying to think of, you know, standing on the yoga balls and and doing different motions on that that's a huge thing and but yeah we definitely incorporate all of that into you know strength agility 
your cardio. There's a little bit of everything goes into our workouts, and that's why I think they're so fun, and you don't get stagnant and just trying to get buff. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like your workouts are so varied. I mean, it sounds exciting. They are, yeah. They're they're really fun, and a lot of them are in group classes, and it makes it for like a really positive environment when you're around other athletes, water athletes, and it's an athletic training facility. So it's everyone's motivating each other to do better and push each other. And it's a pretty awesome, happy, positive place. I'm not exactly sure how to ask this because competition feels sort of separate from surfing. I mean, does competing and surfing feel weird to you? And like, how do you approach competition? Yeah. I mean, I grew up competing and doing you know, the NSSA events here and HSA events. And, you know, I won a couple national titles in California as a kid and then continued on and was competing on the QS into my early 20s. But it was something that, you know, like, I think I got out of my system at a younger age. Like, I'm definitely a competitive person, but it's not the end all be all. And I think when you want to win heats that needs to be your absolute 100% focus and I got the chance to turn that back on um, just a couple months ago at the ISAs in El Salvador which was the last Olympic qualifier and I did pretty well I was two heats shy of two heats or three heats shy of qualifying and after not being involved in competition or events in a really long time it was It was really fun to kind of get back in the mix and I had a blast and I really loved dedicating, you know, a few months of like hardcore, just focusing on heats ahead of that event. But I don't think that it's something that is what brings out the best in my surfing. I think my best surfing shines in, in waves that most contests don't happen in and big wave surfing is a bit different, you know, our competitions that we get to have, I feel like they're just a bonus on top of what we get to do because, you know, usually our lineups are pretty busy on the good days. And for these events, you're surfing with just five other people. So six people out in the lineup at once. And I mean, that's like the good old days and most of them are friends. And I think, you know, your mindset's a bit different because you're you know, you're limited to a certain amount of time, 45 minutes or an hour for a final. And that amount of time goes by really quickly in, in a big wave lineup. So, you know, you're, you're out there to, to ride waves and to make it through your heat. But I approach big wave surfing in such a different way, you know, like I, I'm not going to just send it on any wave just to make a heat. Like I really want to go out and continue to do what I do in my free surfs. But you know, just hone in on trying to get it done in a shorter amount of time. But yeah, it does feel a bit strange, but it's also, you know, I've had some amazing highlight moments of my career have been in competition and big waves. And I wouldn't see myself turning down an invite to a big wave event, at least for (laughs) quite a while. (laughs) I really love being able to surf big waves with only a few people out. So is it like a personal goal within the competition yourself? Like it sounds like what you're doing when you're taking those waves is achieving something that's a personal goal for yourself within that larger context. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's interesting. Totally. Yeah. Like for sure you get 
in an hour, you know, it depends on the swell and the direction and the size and all of that. But you might only get, let's say, maybe three sets in, in an hour, just depending on the period. And so positioning comes to play where like out at Jaws, I feel pretty comfortable with my lineups, but that's where I've spent the most amount of time. So, you know, when we go to other venues and have competition that I haven't had as much time out in the lineup, for sure, it's a, it's a different thing where it's like, okay, just ride waves. But here at home and out at Jaws, it's like, you know, if you pick the wrong wave, that could end your winter. Maybe it's not like a life-threatening injury or anything, but you could be limping around for a couple months. And I've done that way too many times <laughs> to now where I'm just, you know, a lot more methodical in the waves that I'm, I'm choosing. And I'm not going to go out and just send it on anything just because we're in a contest. You know, I, I really want to go out and just ride waves that are meant for me. and. It definitely is still, you know, like at the back of my mind, like that I want to do well in the event, of course, but, you know, just going out and tapping in with the ocean and, and really trying to be present in the moment and enjoy it. I want to talk about equity and you're a founding member of the Committee for Equity and Women's Surfing. So where are we in women's surfing right now in terms of equity and growth and diversity and youth involvement and young girls and whatnot? I think we're in a pretty unique space, you know, on our planet. Things are, we're in a pretty crazy time. But in sport, for sure, we've come leaps and bounds from where we were, let's say, five years ago and 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Looking back, the sport of surfing has grown so much, and there are so many incredible athletes that are putting on just absolutely amazing performances. And I think, you know, equality in surfing has come just so far there's still a lot of work to be done but I think you know on the competition side of things like the World Surf League has done a, an amazing job over the past few years to you know give women more equal opportunity in the competitions and with the quality of surf you know back in the day you know if it was the same event and they were run side by side the women were always put in the water when the surf sucked it was, okay, the waves are shitty, let, let's put the women out. It was, you know, it was more than obvious and done for years and years and years and years. And you can see now that that isn't happening. It's really awesome to see that we are making improvements. And, you know, equal pay was a huge, a huge jump and a step in the right direction. And hopefully that will translate over into other sports. Being in the ocean is just such an amazing, even playing field for all athletes. And I think that, you know, it's like anything. I truly believe that men and women should be paid equally for their talent and their hard work and their dedication and for putting their lives on the line if we're talking big wave surfing. So, yeah, it's definitely gone in the right direction. And as far as the media, I feel like we still have a lot of work to go, especially in the surf world, sharing more female stories and highlighting more of the women athletes. But um, it has definitely gotten a lot better, especially in the past few years. What's sponsorship like in surfing for women? Yeah, the whole sponsorship thing is just so turned upside down in the past couple of years. And then especially, you know, with 2020, things have 
changed a lot. And I would say that the money is still not anywhere near equal. But with that being said, I, I know and I'm so happy that, you know, there are a handful of the top female surfers in the world are making somewhat equivalent money. But I know Chris is not making the same amount as John John. So (laughs) there's still a huge pay gap when it comes to sponsorship deals. I'm always someone that likes to look at both sides of things and not just be so stuck on like the negative of like, oh, this is how it should be. Because maybe, you know, the argument is that there are different opportunities that are strictly for women. Let's say like Venus razors, like that's like a female brand. that you know only women have the the opportunity to tap into that but to answer your question with a yes or no like no it is not equal but i think it is getting a lot better that comes from you know a lot of a lot of different things but i think using our voices and women need to be able to speak up and say no and demand more it's something that i think i have used in my career more than i wish i like would have you know like I've done it more than I there's so many times that I've had to speak up when I shouldn't have had to is what I mean but I'm so happy that I was raised in a way that you know I talked with my mom last night at dinner something came up and and she's like women need to speak up and you know not just continue to you know oh wear this or do that and it's like no if you don't want to do that you don't need to so It translates over, you know, it's time that women aren't afraid to use our voices to speak up, you know, when things are off and need to change, then we need to step up to the plate. And, you know, going back to the bill that got passed for equal competition here in Hawaii, that took a lot of hard work and a lot of people standing behind that. And you'd be surprised there were a lot of female surfers in Hawaii that didn't step up to the plate when voices needed to be heard at a legislative level you know they didn't want to stir the pot and it's like no we need to be stepping up things are not going to change unless you put your voice on the line like what's the worst case scenario that it turns into a little bit of you know legal equal rights like our equality at a a governmental level it's not going to happen just because someone decides oh we should change this like people need to actually like stand up and put in the time and show up to the meetings and write the letters and do the hard work if not things are not going to change despite what you said about the few women who were not speaking up i mean i love that about the committee for equity and women surfing because you did get a group of women together and i think that's one of the things that has pushed women's sports equality forward in the recent years is that, you know, teams are stepping up. You know, I look to the US USA hockey team, they all stood up and made calls to lower level hockey players so nobody would go against, you know, what they wanted to do in their unity. It's great that you got that committee together. Yeah. You know, at that time when that committee was formed, it was absolutely necessary. And I think the power in numbers is the way to go for things like that. I don't think that we could have accomplished what we set out to do and what we actually like accomplished if it was just one or two of us. You know, the Wolf Pack, Abby Wambach talks about that a lot and her team and, you know, having the right team around you. For sure, it's a lot easier to make noise as a group, right? 
you know, when everybody is standing up and saying like, hey, this isn't right, we need to change this, it's a lot different than just the one, the one woman in the back squawking. So it's like, people look at women as a whole, and I feel like the power and having each other's backs, like, you know, it doesn't come easy. And there was a lot of critics on the things that we were trying to do just to be a part of the event at Mavericks. That's how it all started. We wanted to be in the event. And it's baffling at the things that we heard and were called and people were threatened and looking back on it, it's like hard not to laugh because it's just absolutely mind boggling that people's brains are so small (laughs) and like times are changing. Like, sorry if you haven't caught on to that by now. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of interesting. So you know, being able to listen to both sides. And I know for the men, at least speaking from our experience, you know, there was a lot of hesitation to have their support because they saw it as taking away from the pot. And, you know, there were quite a few of the guys that understood that the pot can grow to make our pay equal. It wasn't about taking away from the guys. It's about standing up as a unit and saying that we demand that the pot grow, not oh, let's take it from the guys and give it to the girls. So we had to deal with a lot of that. You know, nothing is perfect in these organizations. Like, they they didn't do it perfectly, and nobody can. But it was quite a unique thing to go through. I think just, you know, sticking to your gut and and speaking out on things that are your truth, it's so important right now. Speaking of that, like Elizabeth and I had talked about this subject just a little bit, but the development of like, just say things like the surfwear industry, you know, this year, particularly because they're trying to sell lifestyle, seems like all the bikinis that are developed are so non-athletic. And every time I go into a store and I talk to a sales rep, I'm like, you know, with all these women developing athletically out in the water, why are these bikinis the kind that just come off in one way? Like, why are we not seeing more of the you know, like Chris Moore came out with that line with Hurley. Those are the kind of things I wear with the cross back so they're not just falling off. But, you know, some of my friends that work in surf stores are saying like the industry is really developing it for fashion. And it's shocking because the proportion of women growing in the sport is like taking off and it's growing exponentially. And then you're making bikinis for like, you know, just to lay out on the beach, but you're calling it surfwear. It's pretty insulting if you ask me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's kind of a funny thing, right? Like the market is used surfing forever to market clothing and and bikinis to the masses and make it seem like surfers just hang out on the beach and whatever. But to that, I mean, supporting the brands that are making athletic wear is where it's at because that's not going to stop. They're still going to continue to make bikinis for, you know, just lounging and cruising by the pool there are a lot of amazing brands out there that are making, you know, thinking about, oh, is this top going to stay on when someone duck dives or are these bottoms going to hold, you know, in a wipeout? And I think just really supporting those brands is so important so that they continue to grow. Yeah. We're over an hour, but before we go, I want to ask how your garden is doing. <laughs> um, both of my gardens. Ooh. We have a kind of a unique situation right now. We're building an Ohana here and down at our property, we have a garden down there and a lot of fruit trees. And we've been doing a lot of really hard work in the dirt down there. And it's been, 
just so amazing and so gratifying and I'm just so stoked about it and it brings me so much joy and then here at our house that we're renting you know it's a bit hot right now but I've got a lot of tomatoes and peppers I've got daikon growing arugula beans a lot of beans it's bean season right now in Hawaii and yeah I just absolutely love having a garden and growing my own food and learning more and more about the importance of our soils and bringing our soils back to how they need to be and regenerative ag is so important right now I just think it's the absolute best thing to go out and pick food that you've planted seeds in your garden and cook and share a meal with, you know, your friends and family. I think that that is just like absolutely insane magic, like riding a wave. It's just, it's something that I've become very passionate about. And I just think it's so awesome watching my little plant babies grow. (laughs) I love it. It's a really big thing here in Hawaii for regenerative agriculture. Luckily, you know, I see more small farms popping up everywhere up here, you know, so you can have access to fresh foods here. And uh, young people are doing it. And it's really incredible. It's hard, hard work. But I think it's really important that, you know, the younger generation is pushing this regenerative agriculture here in Hawaii, especially so that we become less reliant on tourism or something else, you know. A hundred percent. We need to be focusing on that. You know, it's been a hot topic in our household for a very long time, but it needs to be talked about in all households, especially here in Hawaii. We're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. If things stop coming here, what are we going to do? And we have such amazing soil here and such an amazing climate that we should be growing all of our produce. Like we shouldn't have to be shipping in over 95% of our produce. Like that is so wild to me. and. I just think, you know, supporting local farms is so important and growing your own, you know, it's not very hard to have just like a little something. Like I understand like it is, it is extremely hard work and it takes time. Um, but it's not hard to have just, you know, just your herbs growing or some lettuce, like in the winter time, all you have to do is sprinkle seeds in the ground and they grow. So it's something that we all need to kind of tap into and for sure, like, this generation growing up could have so many amazing opportunities to be growing all of our food for Hawaii. And I hope that that is looked at, you know, from our government, we need to be encouraging that a lot more. Our whole state could be growing and we could be exporting food here. We have so many different climates that can grow literally anything. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's something I'm very passionate about and something that I hope to see more of and I'm really encouraging all of my friends to do it and I I don't know if you guys follow me on social media my whole Instagram story is about my garden and what we're planting because I truly love it like it's it's so much fun and yeah it's hard work getting it set up but then once it's set up it kind of does its own thing you know it's amazing what just adding some compost and some manure to your soil does when you replant What's your growing season? Are you growing all year? Totally. I mean, in oh, the winter, wow. in the winter time, it's the best because it's rain, sun, rain, sun. I never water my garden ever, like literally not once. And then right now it's the dry season and it's really hot. So for sure, I'm a slave to watering my garden. 
you can grow year round. It's just right now it's, it's so hot. So we just have different things growing in the garden, you know, all the greens and everything in the winter rage and, you know, have kales and bok choy and chard and all of that. And right now it's a bit hot for that sort of stuff, at least where I, I am. Cause we have full sun on our garden, but it's pretty incredible. You know, I love it. And do you can? My mom and I are going to get into doing some canning because I have never, I've never done it, but she used to do it a lot when I was a kid. And when we were growing up in Canada, my mom had the most amazing raging garden. And my friends would ask for my mom's dill veggies. She'd do dill pickles, carrots, and beans in a jar. And my friends would ask for those for, you know, for their birthday or for Christmas or something like, can I have a jar wow. of mom's pickled <laughs> stuff? And um, we've been talking about doing it. My mom's actually getting her can stashed together. And I'm like, I'll focus on the garden. <laughs> you focus on the canning. Um, but we're, we're going to do it because it's, why not? Yeah. She sounds like an amazing woman, by the way. She is. She's incredible. Very grateful to have her just walking distance from our place. Well, thank you so much. Do either of you want to say anything before we wrap up? I really want to thank Reynolds Hayes and his wife, Taylor Bushman, for suggesting Aww. you as our interviewee. They send their love. They said they're huge fans. If you know Reynolds, he's just a great spirit in the surfing industry, you know? Yeah, those guys are awesome. I've known Reynolds since I was a little kid and would compete with Taylor. And yeah, they're both just amazing humans. And thank you guys for the intro. Yeah, thank you to them. And thanks, Dana, for saying that. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Nice chatting with you, ladies. That's it for this week's show with another great athlete. Thank you to Women on Waves for sponsoring this episode. Women on Waves does exactly what Paige calls for in the media. Share stories of women in surfing and highlight women athletes in the sport. Find this book on the history of women surfing and incredible surfers at hearhersports.com books. Bookshop is a terrific organization that supports local bookshops and this very podcast. Thank you to Dana and to Paige, and thank you to you for being here, sending me your thoughts and telling your friends what you've heard and learned. We always have great shows coming up, so make sure to subscribe for free to Hear Her Sports on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss anything. Find me on social at Hear Her Sports or email elizabeth at hearhersports.com. Until next time, bye-bye. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current 
form guide and will be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Lovinato and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.